Hello, Monetization Nation. Michael Solomon is one of the world's leading experts on consumer behavior. His newest book is The New Chameleons, How to Connect with Consumers Who Defy Categorization. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the psychology of consumer behavior and marketing strategies Michael uses to gain customer loyalty. Tectonic shifts are constantly transforming the earth and business, causing destruction and huge growth opportunities. I'm Nathan William, the host of Monetization Nation, where we learn how to leverage business tectonic shifts to transform monetization. Michael is one of the world's leading experts on consumer behavior. He literally wrote the book on it. Hundreds of thousands of business students have learned about marketing from Michael's books, including consumer behavior, buying, having, and being. It's the most widely used book on the subject in the world. Michael's mantra is, we don't buy products because of what they do. We buy them because of what they mean. He advises global clients on marketing strategies to make them more consumer-centric. Michael is a contributor at Forbes.com, and he's frequently quoted in publications such as New York Times, The Washington Post, Time, USA Today, and Adweek. His newest book, The Chameleons, uh, Connecting with Consumers Who Defy Categorization. Uh, he's also a professor of marketing at the, at the business school at St. Joseph's University. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. Hi, Nathan. Thanks for having me on. So can you start off by sharing with us something that you are super passionate about? Oh, well, uh, I guess, you know, one thing I'm passionate about is everyday consumption. All of the things we, we take for granted in our daily lives, uh, pandemic or not, um, that really have a lot of, of meaning to them. So the brands that we buy, the everyday brands and the stories that they tell and the way that our lives kind of mingle with those stories, you know, the whole process of branding and so on um, has fascinated me for many, many years. And I've been happy to do a lot of research and, and work on that because we, we tend to ignore the everyday stuff. And, and you know, in marketing, we, we like to focus on the big extravagant things, but the things that we do every day are very important as well. Yeah. Tell me about your new book, The New Chameleons. Sure. Well, The New Chameleons uh, really is is based on a lot of observations I've, I've had the opportunity to make about consumers and how they're changing, and especially how a lot of the assumptions that we as marketers make and that even I teach to my students really, really are outmoded and on the verge of becoming obsolete. So the reason I call them The New Chameleons is that unlike the old days where things were a lot more static and we had we just dealt with mass markets, really large groups of homogeneous people, uh, today everybody is much more of an individual. And so just like a chameleon changes its color as it moves into different environments, I think many of us today are doing something similar with our identities. That is, we try on new identities, we try on new lifestyles, we're able to do it uh, sometimes uh, in, in the flesh, especially when we can travel again, uh, but we also do it vicariously. You know, every time we surf the web or we look at someone's Instagram page or something like that, um, it's bringing up certain aspects of ourselves that we, that we tend to change very frequently. And so the old categories that we used to use to describe our customers, uh, you know, really basic ones, like even male versus female, rich versus poor, 
et cetera, really don't make much sense in a, in a society that's so much more fluid and it changes very, very rapidly. I love it. Uh, what is the most important key takeaway from that book? Oh, you're really putting me on the spot there to pick, to pick one. But I, I guess I would say the, the key takeaway for marketers is don't fall prey to the, to the fallacy that if you assign something a name, you then understand it and you can move on. So we tend to think of our consumers, in, again, in these large blocks, like, say, women in their 20s who live in urban areas or something like that. And then we think we understand all of them. And the reality is that each one of them is really uh, more proactive than that. And so don't, don't assume that you know all your customers and certainly don't assume that just because you've put them all into a certain segment that they're all going to react identically. Tell us about your journey, your story to become a world leading expert in consumer behavior. <laughs> well, I, I guess I'll give you the short story and I, I appreciate the, the, label, the label there, but um, you know, my PhD is in social psychology and um, basically I was doing, when I was in grad school many years ago, uh, I was doing a lot of research on physical attractiveness, that is how a, a person's looks influence what happens to them in their lives. And by that, I don't just mean, you know, whether you're getting a date or not. I'm talking about other outcomes, like whether you get hired, whether you get a different salary based on your appearance and all of that. And here's a hint that that is actually the case usually. <clears throat> but what I realized is that when we are looking at, at how we form impressions of others based on how they look, Almost all of the research really was from here up, you know, it was from the chin up. It was all about what the face looks like, maybe a little bit about body types, you know, muscular or not, and that kind of thing. But, but so much of, of our social identity is actually formed by the things that we buy, the services and products that we buy, that I began to, to realize the, the overlooked importance of that. And so... I started out by looking in the fashion industry and doing a lot of work on the psychology of fashion and how everyday products like Levi Strauss blue jeans, for example, I worked with Levi's for several years, uh, how these really do fundamentally influence who we are. And so over the years, um, as I, I started as a marketing professor uh, way back, uh, I hate to say it, about 40 years ago, and uh, over those years, I, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of great companies to help them understand how their customers perceive their brands or experience their brands, not how they experience their brands. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun to look at uh, different industries, again, fashion being one, but also even in something like financial services, you know, as I'm sure you realize, your, our relationships with money help to define who we are as individuals. So I've had the opportunity to do a lot of that. And then over the years, uh, branched out into, into doing a lot of keynotes to industry groups to talk to them about this. Um, and as you mentioned, book writing, which is one of my favorite things to do. And I've written uh, numerous textbooks and, and also a few trade books, like the one that's just published. What's the greatest home run you've hit during that career? Oh boy, you, you come up with some tough questions here. <laughs> uh, I would say, you know, it's probably that textbook that you mentioned when you introduced me, because that book, um, I 
I believe, you know, trying to be objective about it, it's my baby, I'm very attached to it, but uh, that book is now in its 13th edition. Uh, it's used around the world and it, it really helped to change the way we teach consumer behavior. So it, it was the first book to really get beyond the kind of rats running in a maze sort of thing. If you give people a piece of cheese, so to speak, they'll buy your product. And there's actually something to be said for that. <clears throat> but our consumption decisions are so much deeper than that and so much more nuanced. And so this book was the first to really encourage the integration of a lot of different perspectives on what it means to consume and what it means to market to people who need to consume. So it's, it. it's been a great ride over the years. And, uh, you know, I, the only the only part that makes me a little nuts is that I have to revise it every two to three years because things change so rapidly in marketing. It's not like an algebra book where I could just kind of leave it be. So, but I've definitely, you know, that was definitely very instrumental in uh, kind of launching my career. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. What is the greatest mistake or failure that you or one of your customers have made related to consumer behavior? And what did you learn from it? Mm. Wow. Um, I, you know, I think the biggest mistake is, something that I alluded to already, which is assuming that you know your customers and really projecting what you want your customers to be rather than who they really are. So I've, I've worked with various clients who, uh, you know, when I talk to them about who their customers are, you know, tell me a story about that ideal customer. What I find is very often those stories are idealized and they're really a projection of what that person assumes those customers are. So for example, uh, in a lot of companies, I find that, that the management uh, kind of overestimates the degree to which their customers are more glamorous or upscale or affluent, when in fact, that may not be the case. Now, that doesn't make them bad customers, but what it means is that the mistake people make is marketing to the client or the customer that they want to have rather than the customer they actually have. This show is about digital monetization primarily and how people can use the assets they have to, to generate more profits with, with digital strategies. What is the best monetization strategy that, that you know of? Well, you know, I think at this point, it's probably just um, uh, outbound content marketing. Does that, does that count as a strategy? Yeah, creating, definitely. Creating sure. <laughs> A lot of great content, uh, you know, rather than than pestering people with tons of of annoying emails and, and so on, and we have to do that to some extent. But we know that today, uh, you know, the real the real bonds that people are forming with with companies or with individuals are because those people are putting out great content that attracts these people. And so you're not, so to speak, putting a gun to someone's head, to, you know, to sign up for your email newsletter. Um, you're creating content that's so good, they want to be a part of whatever it is you're, you're doing. And, you know, uh, uh, the great uh, management theorist, Peter Drucker, defined marketing as, if it's done well, as making selling superfluous. So in other words, if you create an offering and you communicate about it, and this doesn't happen that often in the real world, but the ideal is, you know, if you create an offering and a value proposition and let people know about it, and it really resonates with them, you certainly don't have to sell them anything because as long as you give them a path back to you, 
um, you know, you're, you're doing exactly what they need. And I so that. I think that's what good content marketing does. And it, it provides a path back to you. It also provides credibility for us. It nurtures a relationship with them. Um, it does a whole bunch of things that right. helps bring them back to us when they're ready to make that purchase. Yeah, that's great. What do you feel is the biggest tectonic shift that is transforming our business landscape today? Hmm. Well, you know, there are several of them. I mean, that's, you know, I write about them in the book. I actually write about seven of them and, and some throw in some others for good measure as well. Um, if I had to pick one, though, I would say it's the end of the artificial dichotomy that we, many of us have between producers and consumers of a product or service. So a lot of companies fall into this trap of really maintaining a very tight perimeter on what they're doing until it, that product is absolutely perfect. And then they launch it and hope that, it, that people agree with them. Uh, but what we see today is that really the, this boundary doesn't exist so much anymore because our customers are taking over a lot of the functions or at least helping with a lot of the functions that used to be only on one side of that fence, so to speak. So for, for example, our customers are content creators, our customers are advertisers. Many people love to create ads that are, sometimes they're negative, but sometimes they're more like testimonials about how wonderful that product is. Uh, our customers are becoming product designers. So again, for companies that are willing to kind of let them peek under the kimono, uh, what it means is that they're, they're viewing their customers as one of their best assets in the product development process because our customers and also our employees, by the way, are our two biggest underutilized assets. And so again, to, to come back to your question, the tectonic shift is that many companies, again, not all, Apple being the, the prime example of a company that is the opposite, but many companies are figuring out that in fact, it, it doesn't make sense to keep the consumer at, at a distance but rather you want to embrace that consumer and involve them in the process. And you get some great insights as well, number one. And number two, consumers who are more proactively involved in this process are more engaged with the products and services that allow them in. And so it's really a win-win for both sides. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you, you mentioned a moment ago that in your book, you mentioned, or you describe seven different tectonic shifts. Is that in the new chameleons book? Yes. in the new chameleons. Yeah. Every, every chapter is about a different fundamental assumption that most of us make, which isn't true anymore. Yeah. Do you want to take us through those really quick? Cause I am fascinated with tectonic shifts. I am fascinated because I believe the best way to drive monetization today is by identifying and leveraging tectonic shifts. If, if we try to do what everybody else is doing in the old strategies, then you know, we're gonna be one of, of many and we're gonna be competing against people that have far more resources and they're far more established than we are. And so the, the secret to, to getting ahead is finding 
what changed, just like Jeff Bezos did with Amazon, right? And he differentiated himself from Sears because he really leveraged e-commerce and he didn't try to be the retail department store like Sears was, and, and he did it a different way. He leveraged that tectonic shift. Would you share with us what your other tectonic shifts are? Uh, yeah, I mean, and you know, generally to follow up on what, on what you're saying, this is where the opportunities lie. So, you know, we have this old cliche, I, I can't stand it, think outside the box. You know, how many times have we been told to think outside the box? But in this case, it, it really is applicable because what happens is that we put, as I've said, we put our customers into boxes and we put what we sell into a box. That is, we, we decide that we're in a certain vertical. And when we're looking to innovate, we often are just coming up with incremental changes in that vertical. And we're competing against, as you said, often well-entrenched competitors who have been in that vertical a lot longer. So when you look at some of the really breakout business ideas or product ideas that we've experienced, it's when people are able to, to lift up and look outside of that vertical that they've hemmed themselves into and maybe combine a few verticals together. So I'll, I'll give you a couple, I'll give you an example. Um, one example in the fashion industry, I think a lot of your, your viewers would understand. We used to have a category, we still have a category called um, athletic wear, right? So that's a category in the fashion industry. Uh, it's, you know, well-defined, it's got its competitors, it's got its kind of product map and everything. But that's a category that hasn't done well uh, you know, it's kind of stable, not very exciting for a long time. Then you have another category the industry uses called leisure wear. Uh, again, well-defined, kind of static and boring. Now, a few years ago, along come a few visionaries. Uh, for example, uh, the, the founder of Lululemon was one of those uh, and that whole company. Uh, but there are others as, as well who said, you know what, what if we had a hybrid category where we combine two existing categories to create a new one. And they did. And we call that athleisure and, uh, you know, okay. yoga leggings and all that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, that's become a multi-billion dollar category that didn't exist just a few years ago. And so when you, when you don't allow yourself to get hemmed in and you say, well, you know, some of the biggest decisions I have to make is how do I categorize what I sell? Uh, another one that's very interesting today and has not been resolved is uh, wearable computing, like uh, Fitbits and Apple Watches and all that. And you know, I've done some research um, in this industry, and a lot of consumers are confused about just what that is and what it replaces. You know, is it is it technology? Is it jewelry? Is it a fitness product? And the answer is it can be all of those. Yeah, but depending on how the consumer decides to group it. You know, you can buy an, you can buy an Hermé uh, Apple watch for $2,000. Um, is that just another watch that you use when you're working out? Well, maybe not. Maybe it's a luxury item. You know, we don't, we don't really know. And so there's a lot of strategic decisions like that, that uh, when you try to, to kind of pigeon them into, pigeonhole them into existing categories, you really come up short. But if, you, if you're able to create a new category like wearable computing, then it gives you a lot more room to operate and your competition diminishes because most of your competitors haven't figured out that they're allowed to go into adjacent categories as well. 
How are digital and social media most affecting consumer behavior today? Oh, boy, that's a tough question because so much of our lives are being affected by it. But uh, I think that, you know, the big the biggest thing going on today is it's what I've written about uh, when I call the, the horizontal revolution. And what I mean by that is that in, in so-called, in, uh, sometimes it's called Web 2.0 or Internet 2.0, uh, where we're at now, we have the ability not just to receive messages, which was back in the early days of the internet, you know, um, just a one-sided kind of thing. Today, it's it's all about the interactivity. So, uh, so the first the first big event here was the ability of us as customers to interact, kind of up the chain with the with the producers, and turn it into a two-way conversation. But I think the even bigger change is the horizontal one where you and I as customers, not, you know, we may not be involved with the company in any way at all, but you and I are going to communicate horizontally, if you will, peer to peer about that product or service. And, and as you, you know, that kind of word of mouth is really what determines whether people are going to buy a product or, or avoid it. And so we not only have that up and down communication that we, that we had 10 years ago, but we have that, ver that horizontal communication, which means that so much of our daily lives is spent networking with our peers, this constant, uh, the bad part of it is it, we get overwhelmed by the amount of information, this fire hose of information that we're getting, not just from the players up above us in the distribution chain, but from our peers. So influencer marketing, for example, that everybody talks about, you know, why is it so important? Well, a big reason is that these influencers are considered to be kind of peers in the channel. They don't work for the companies, or at least as far as we know, and they are helping to filter out that, that fire hose full of, of information to turn it into a manageable set of drips that we can then understand. How do consumers form their attitudes and how do we as marketers help change those attitudes? Yeah, well, the second part of that question is something a lot of people would like to understand. How do we persuade people? How do we get them to change? And we form our attitudes. You know, you were, you were asking about learning that's what happens after the learning has occurred. The attitude is now something that's in our, now it's not you know, a physical something that's, that's in your brain, but it's a belief structure that's composed of both emotional components and cognitive components. So it's things that I think I know about a brand. I think I know, I may not be correct, but I think I know, and it's how I feel about those things. So for example, it's not enough to say that, um, you know, uh, knowing that I have a hybrid car, let's say, um, probably tells me that I believe hybrid cars are better for the environment. But I probably also have an emotional component there where I think it's good that that's a good thing. So two right. people can, if you see where I'm going, two people can believe that hybrid cars are good for the environment, but one doesn't really care. And that doesn't mean they'll have a positive attitude toward hybrid cars. And so the way we change attitudes, it, again, it depends. There, there are many, many, there's no single answer here. Uh, psychologists have been studying attitudes for 
80 years uh, and how to change them. And actually, World War II was the big impetus for this, getting people to change their behaviors, for example, to ration meat and other supplies. That was really the, the, the beginning of attitude research, believe it or not. Um, and, and what we want to know is how deeply held is the attitude, uh, what is it linked to, uh, how important is it to the person, and depending on the answers to those and some other questions, there's different ways that, that we can change an attitude. There is definitely not a one-size-fits-all. So, uh, for example, people who are very uh, involved with some issue are, are likely to be more interested in getting a lot of factual information about that, like say the, the impact of climate change or something. They're less likely to be persuaded by, uh, you know, little marketing tricks like endorsers who say climate change is bad or packages right. that are cool to look at, et cetera. Uh, they want, they really want the informational approach. But on the other hand, someone who's not that sort of deeply held about that issue is more likely, you know, you, we have the expression, do you sell the steak or the sizzle? And that relates to this question because people who are really motivated, there's that word again, to, to really dig into that issue, they want the steak, but people who are really not that interested and they just kind of want to make a quick decision, they'll be motivated by the sizzles. Thank you so much, Michael, for sharing your stories and knowledge with us today. Here's some of my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, consumers are constantly changing. Number two, the old categories we use to describe our customers don't make that much sense anymore since society is changing so rapidly. Number three, don't assume that customers within a specific category will behave the same. Number four, customers are taking over a lot of the functions of our business. Number five, customers trust peer reviews over advertisements or self-promotion. Number six, by providing valuable content to our customers, we pave a path for customers to come back to us when they're ready to make a purchase decision. If you enjoyed this interview and want to learn more about Michael or connect with him, you can find him on his LinkedIn profile or his website, michaelsolomon.com. And there's links to both of those in the blog post for this episode at monetizationnation.com. Do you want to be a better digital monetizer? Then please follow these channels to receive free digital monetization content. Number one, please subscribe to the free Monetization e-magazine at monetizationnation.com. Number two, you can subscribe to the Monetization Nation podcast and YouTube channel. And number three, please follow Monetization Nation on Instagram and Twitter. How do you connect with your customers? Please join our private Monetization Nation Facebook group and share your insights with other digital monetizers. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I wish you success in building your customer loyalty. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.